former Vice President Mike Pence is more than just a virulent homophobe. This past weekend, he also revealed himself to be a white nationalist. But can you really separate the two? I'll have more on Mike Pence's racism. But first, this is Jill Colin Jefferson. She's an African-American woman. And up until this afternoon, she was sweltering in a Mississippi prison. All because of $35. $35. Mississippi has the largest percentage of black residents in America, yet it remains one of our country's most segregated states. Lexington, Mississippi, where Jill Colin Jefferson was arrested Saturday night, has a population of 1,800, 1,500 of whom are black. Only 300 white people in Lexington, Mississippi, and yet the mayor, the city attorney, the top judge, and a former police chief who seems to have held on to way too much power after retiring, they are all white in a town that is controlled by one wealthy white family named the Barretts. This town, Lexington, Mississippi, is a throwback to before the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, which is why black residents are suing Lexington, Mississippi in federal court, accusing local police of violating their civil liberties. This lawsuit was filed by a nonprofit public interest group called Julian, and it's headed by this woman, Jill Collin Jefferson, who spent the weekend inside the Holmes-Humphreys County Regional Correctional Facility after Lexington, Mississippi police arrested her for videotaping patrol officers as they pulled African-Americans off to the side of the road. It is perfectly legal in America to videotape police officers doing their job unless you get too close and interrupt them. Police are not allowed to seize your phone after you film them unless they claim it's evidence, in which case that's up to a judge to decide. But usually the evidence police are seizing is evidence that incriminates the police. According to reports, Jill Colin Jefferson, African-American woman, spent Saturday night in her car, videotaping police stops. And there was one specific police stop that she was videotaping, and the officer didn't appreciate it. So he walked over to her car, asked for ID, which she reportedly gave him. He then asked her to step out of the car. And Jefferson, a lawyer, refused. And so he arrested her. Jefferson's organization, as I said, is Julian, and it's suing Lexington, Mississippi's police department before this arrest. And Ms. Jefferson claims her arrest is retaliation for Ms. Jefferson bringing Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark of the United States Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division down to Lexington, Mississippi a week ago so she could hear the complaints from black residents of Lexington, Mississippi, 
complaints about police brutality, unnecessary search and seizure, and of course, intimidation. So what does this all have to do with $35? When Jill Colin Jefferson was arrested Saturday night, she was taken before a judge who realized she was the lawyer suing his city for precisely the same reason she was hauled before him, police violating the rights of African-Americans. So the judge made an exception and extended an offer to free her so long as she agreed to pay a $35 processing fee. He thought that was reasonable, but she refused to pay the fee. Instead, she braved the squalor, the heat, and the violence of a Mississippi prison cell so she would receive no special treatment just because she's a lawyer who can make trouble as well as bail. She was able to come up with $35 for a processing fee, but she said, no, take me here to the Holmes Humphreys County Correctional Facility. She was released Monday afternoon. She spent the weekend in prison, jail. I'm going to try to play her statement. I don't know if this will work. Let's see if it works. May not. Wish me luck. This is Ms. Jefferson after she was released from the Holmes County Correctional Facility. I think black citizens here. They have been arresting them for no reason. They have been harassing them. They have been beating them up in custody. They have been sexually assaulting women, using their badges to get sexual favors from women in exchange for not arresting them, in exchange for not ticketing them. And finally, the other night, they didn't know who I was when I was riding around. So she, I hope you could hear that. Uh, instead of paying the $35 processing fee, she spent two nights at the Holmes Humphreys County Correctional Facility. Ms. Jefferson, a lawyer, was trying to draw attention to how towns like Lexington, Mississippi, or Ferguson, Missouri, use black people as cash cows, keeping them in perpetual cycles of debt by charging them for the privilege of a false arrest. She, she refused to pay the $35 processing fee two nights in that hideous jail. Well, this is how too many cities throughout America pay their bills. Instead of raising taxes, they stop black people. They stop them because they look suspicious. They stop them because there's a busted taillight fix-it ticket that they could write, or an old bench warrant for a previous fix-it ticket comes up on the computer or an unpaid $35 processing fee for a previous arrest, and then it's another night in jail. See, if you're African-American and you're innocent, it's just a false arrest, but pay us anyway. Give us the $35 processing fee she was doing nothing wrong Saturday night. She was sitting in her car videotaping police officers pulling over African-Americans. She wasn't disrupting the, their jobs, but she was arrested falsely. And 
was asked to pay $35 for that. Uh, oftentimes, when black men and women are pulled over for some bullshit reason, the judge will uh, release them on the promise that when they can scrounge together $35, they will pay the processing fee. But if they don't pay it, and why should they? It was just a shakedown. If they don't pay it, eventually there's a bench warrant that they know nothing about. And when they're pulled over again for being black, the bench warrant comes up and they end up going to prison. When a black motorist gets pulled over here in America for being black, and they always are, the officer knows to run a check on their license because if they're poor, the cop will more likely than not discover a bench warrant on an unpaid processing fee for a false arrest. And voila, that black motorist is arrested again and is fingerprinted and now has two arrests on their record. One false arrest turns into another false arrest. That means more fines. And it also means the judges look busy, the police look busy, the prison warden looks busy. Everyone looks busy justifying their paychecks at the expense, literally at the expense of the black motorists who never broke the law. Now, that's not me talking. That is former attorney general under President Obama, Eric Holder. His Justice Department in March of 2015, after the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, his Justice Department sent a crew of lawyers down to Ferguson, Mississippi, to investigate what the hell is going on in a town populated by mostly black people, but run by white cops. And the Obama Justice Department issued a report. And this is what it said. I'm going to go full screen, I hope. Eric Holder said, Local authorities consistently approach law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way of generating revenue. Holder said, adding that racial bias, both implicit and explicit, results in the unconstitutional execution of the law. This is from Politico. One woman, this is the Attorney General of the United States under Barack Obama, Eric Holder, one woman, Holder said, was given two parking tickets in 2007 that together tallied $152. To date, she has paid $550 in fines and fees, been arrested twice for unpaid tickets, and spent six days in jail. Still, she owes the city $541. Amazing. This is, of course, a variation on the vagrancy laws passed after the Civil War. The vagrancy laws allowed a freed black man to be arrested for loitering. That's what the vagrancy laws, especially in the South, mostly in the South, 
lock up a free black man for loitering, put him to work in a prison instead of on a plantation. We all know, at least my listeners all know, about the loophole in the 13th Amendment. My listeners know this. If you're a student in Ron DeSantis's Florida, you're not allowed to know this. You're not allowed to teach the loophole in the 13th Amendment because it will upset the fragile egos of some white students and their parents. The 13th Amendment outlawed involuntary servitude, except in prison. That's the loophole, except in prison. Here in America, if you get locked up, you are expected to work. You are expected to build furniture, make soap, even cut deli meat for some of America's top corporations. In some states, refusal to work in prison often results in solitary confinement, loss of privileges like being able to see your family on visiting day, and even longer prison sentences if you don't want to work, they keep you there longer. Oh, and by the way, if you're in prison, some states here in America force you to work to pay for what it costs to keep you incarcerated. America. At any given time, America has close to 2.5 million people in federal, state, local prisons and jails. They're disproportionately poor. If not at all, I think they're pretty much all poor. They're disproportionately people of color. And here's what we don't like to talk about. Most of them never had a trial. They're either waiting trial and can't raise bail, or they've plea bargained for a lesser sentence. Most people, as I said, in prison are poor. They're people of color. And most, I would venture all, never got a fair trial. Their overworked and underpaid public defenders scare them. And they tell them, if you make us go to trial, if you make the state go to trial, and you're found guilty, you'll get a stiffer sentence for putting the state through the inconvenience of guaranteeing your Sixth Amendment right to a trial by jury. So you agree to plead guilty even though you're innocent, even though you never had a, even though you never had a trial. You'll do less time. But I'm innocent. Just do the time. That is the American criminal justice system whether you like it or not. Most Americans, unfortunately, look at the brutality inside our prisons and see it as a deterrent, a deterrent to make people think twice about committing a crime. But we really don't have too many criminals inside those prisons because prisons aren't for criminals. They're for poor people to be used as sources of cheap labor. They're also there, the prisons are there to create the illusion that the state is keeping you safe. It's not. They don't solve crimes. Police, if they're lucky, solve 1% of all crimes. Prisons also generate revenue for private contractors who service the prisons as well as Revenue for prison guards who often have powerful unions. But there's another reason America has so many people behind bars. 
racism. And there's racism's twin sister, sadism. Racism is alive and well here in America. And with it is sadism. This is a little rough to look at. It's the installment outside the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. It shows seven Africans in chains, a mother clutching her baby while she reaches for the baby's father. They are either about to be stacked like lumber onto a boat for the Middle Passage to America, or they are about to be auctioned off here in America. The mother and father will be separated, sold to different owners. And I look at this statue and I think of our nation's heritage and where we are today. Now, in the past couple of years, because I wasn't taught critical race in high school, uh, only in the past couple of years have I learned about the loophole in the 13th Amendment and how our economy continues to thrive off free labor in our prisons and why it's in the best interest of corporate America to get poor people, especially of color, into the criminal justice system as early as possible so they will eventually be behind bars working for free. I have learned that race, the concept of race, was invented to justify slavery, to justify the brutalization of a people. You needed to invent something called race, and you you did that by paying religious leaders and scientists to come up with phony spiritual and scientific papers based on this brand new thing called race. You need the idea of race to explain why black people deserve to be treated so maliciously. So when I look at this statue, I am reminded that like scientists hired by the tobacco lobby or the fossil fuel lobby, there has always been a certain type of person who will say and write anything to justify a large paycheck. And there will always be a certain type of person willing to believe them to justify their lifestyle. And there will always be rich people who will cut those checks I look at this statue and I am reminded that when America began, it was already exhibiting the dire consequences of late stage capitalism and capitalism was just beginning. The Declaration of Independence was written by a slaveholder, Thomas Jefferson, in 1776. That was the same year Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, which defined capitalism. Capitalism and America were both defined in 1776. And at both roots of American capitalism is the slave trade, the race to the bottom. Capitalism and America and the slave trade, all about the race to the bottom, paying workers as little as possible, nothing. The brutality... The savagery was all there in our nation's founding as well as capitalism's founding. 
And I look at this statue and I'm reminded America can't escape our past. It is, as they say, prologue. I am reminded that because the greedy here in the United States have reclaimed the high ground, even the moral high ground, they think, they cloak themselves in religion. I'm reminded that because of the greediest among us, the most sadistic among us, have taken over, we are very quickly returning to our nation's founding, slavery, sadism, racism. Our country was founded off slavery, and before that, indentured servitude, cheap labor. Many of the white men who came to America before the slaves were temporary slaves, indentured servants working for free to pay off debts, working for free to pay off sentences to the workhouse for crimes they committed back in Great Britain. Here we are in the 21st century going home, going back to our roots. We have people here in America working for free in prisons. We already have millions of Americans working like indentured servants, unable to pay off crushing debt they rack up to go to college or just eat, pay their rent. We're seeing the legalization of child labor in places like Arkansas. And we already hear from both sides of the aisle that maybe college or even high school isn't necessarily for everyone. Instead of providing free tuition at all public universities, that's what Bernie wanted, instead of providing free tuition at all public universities, we are now hearing that education is unnecessary for a certain class of people. The term liberal arts comes from ancient Rome. Liberal, liberal arts, liberal because it was an education just for slaveholders, not slaves. It was an education just for the liberated. This is where we're heading. Back home to our origins, the antebellum South, ancient Rome, where there were two types of people, the privileged elite and the slaves. We're heading back home. We're heading back home. Our minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. It hasn't been raised since July of 2009, which means by doing nothing, our government has effectively eliminated the minimum wage. Do the math. The minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. $7.25 an hour. It's been that way since 2009. You work an eight-hour day getting $7.25 an hour, that's $58 a day. You work a 40-hour week, that comes out to $290 a week. $290 a week if you work a 40-hour week. Effectively, we no longer have 
a federal minimum wage. Now, 30 states have adopted higher minimum wages, but they're not even livable. $15 an hour, do the math. 20 states here in America have a minimum wage of $7.25. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I apologize. In Georgia, the minimum wage is $5.15. Let me repeat. The minimum wage in the state of Georgia is $5.15. Now, it's superseded by the federal minimum wage in most cases. But $5.15 an hour is the law in Georgia. And I can guarantee you that there are waitresses, babysitters, and farmhands getting paid that which might explain why, as a Republican candidate for Senate in Georgia last year, Herschel Walker said he was opposed to the concept of a minimum wage. He wanted the country to get rid of the minimum wage. He said, let the market decide. And I look at this statue of the seven Africans chained to each other, and I think this is what the market decides when we let the people who control the market control our government, which seems to be happening more and more each day. What kind of signal does our federal government, does our president who promised to raise the minimum wage, what kind of signal is our federal government sending when it says the least amount you must pay someone is $7.25 an hour. Whose side is our federal government on when our government says, by law, you must pay literally starvation wages? That's good enough for our federal government. Starvation wages, $7.25 an hour. Talking about my president, who I voted for, Joe Biden, who promised he was going to raise the minimum wage. Where are you supposed to live or eat on $7.25 an hour? So now, when I look at this statue, I see something I never saw before. I, I see an America forged in racism as well as its twin sister, sadism. I'm not certain you can separate racism from sadism. I always try to explain the motives of Republicans, corporate Democrats. I always say it's all about greed, indifference, power, and racism. But I now see that sadism plays a much bigger part than I was willing to admit. I have come to discover that there is something just as stubborn as the stain of racism here in America. It is the persistence of sadism. At our core, America is a nation of sadists. Not all of us, but too many. Too many Americans are either sadists or complicit in the sadism by remaining silence. 
if we're going to fix this country, we can't underestimate the role unbridled sadism plays in our decision-making processes. Too many policies here in America don't make sense unless you factor in racism and sadism. For example, I have since learned that we almost had universal health care when Harry Truman was president, but Southern Democrats opposed it because they didn't want black people to go to their hospitals. Racism and sadism. Medicare for all is cheaper for the government and the taxpayer than for-profit health insurance. Don't forget the, the, the biggest payer into health insurance is the federal government. And it would be cheaper for taxpayers and the federal government, according to the CBO, to switch to Medicare for all. If you're a corporation, Medicare for all makes even more sense because it means the government pays your employees' health insurance instead of you. And yet, every corporation is against Medicare for all. It is essentially... A subsidy, Medicare for all, would be a subsidy to all corporations. You know, for-profit health insurance cuts into the bottom line of every corporation in America. Corporate America, not interested in providing Medicare for all. Sadism. We've learned in Iowa that the administrative expenses incurred making people work for food stamps costs more money than simply giving them the food stamps. I'm laughing at the stupidity. It costs more to administer work requirements for food stamps in Iowa than it does just give people food stamps. We know that when cities divert money away from law enforcement and they move the money towards a social safety net, we know crime rates go down. And cities don't have to pay millions in out-of-court police brutality settlements. We already know a war on drugs doesn't work. We know that the only way to stop drug addiction is through free, free treatment on demand. Yet, despite all these incontrovertible facts, this country chooses to waste billions on programs that only succeed in punishing our citizens. It makes no sense. Well, sadism. Sadism is the answer. We are ruled by racists and sadists. Our movies, our sports, and our government policies delight in the suffering of others. Our movies, our sports, and our government policies delight in the suffering of others. Sadists. The candidate who's strong on defense or law and order or fiscal discipline a fiscal discipline that deprives children of food, education, medicine, 
Well, that candidate is perceived as the wise adult. While the candidate who pushes for peaceful resolution to conflicts, stopping crime before it happens by taking care of our most vulnerable, well, that candidate is labeled delusional, a child, even worse, a socialist. And nowhere is this more pronounced than in the Republican Party, which brings me back to this guy, former Vice President Mike Pence. He's running for president as a devout Christian, but offers not a single program to help the least among us. No, with Mike Pence, it's all about sadism. Mike Pence is a sadist. We already know he hates the LGBTQ community, is responsible for persecuting the LGBTQ community throughout the country, and especially when he was governor of Indiana, when he passed a bill that resulted in countless suicides inside Indiana's LGBTQ community. But over the weekend, Mike Pence appeared at a Republican gala in North Carolina to assure Republican primary voters that he's just not about punishing the LGBTQ community. He's also a white nationalist. We'll give our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard the support they need to accomplish their mission. We will end the political correctness in the hallways of the Pentagon, and North Carolina will once again be home to Fort Bragg. White nationalist, Christian white nationalist, there's the salute, even though he never served in the military, that is white nationalist, not just the homophobe, but the white nationalist, the white Christian nationalist, Mike Pence, one of the most dangerous people in America. Mike Pence is a sadist, and sadists tend to go after the most vulnerable in our community. That's why he targets the LGBTQ community. And he's a racist, pure and simple. So he wants to return Fort Bragg to its original name. This is a big issue in North Carolina. It's a dog whistle. If you're for changing Fort Bragg's name back to Fort Bragg, uh, you're saying, I hate black people. And that's how you win votes in the Republican primary. Fort Bragg's name was officially changed on October 6, 2022, to Fort Liberty after a string of orders within the Pentagon under Joe Biden ruled that any military installation honoring Confederate generals must be called something else. Now, Fort Bragg, as I said, was named after Confederate General Braxton Bragg. During the Civil War, he fought for the South and not well. He was defeated in the Battle of Chattanooga by General Ulysses S. Grant. And he is considered by most military experts to have been a horrible tactician. 
which explains why his soldiers tried to assassinate him. <laughs> which explains why his soldiers tried to assassinate him on two separate occasions. He is one of the reasons the South lost. Idiot. Hardly the person whose name should be attached to one of America's most important military installations. So why celebrate a loser? Why call it Fort Bragg? Racism and sadism to terrorize African-Americans who live in North Carolina to remind them they're outsiders. He also owned at least 100 slaves. He was an enemy combatant. He fought for the Confederacy. Naming the United States military installation Fort Bragg is tantamount to naming it Fort Garing. The military should not be naming places after our enemies. But Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis have nothing to offer voters other than cruelty, sadism. So are they, so they are making this the issue to run on in North Carolina. If you can't give voters good paying union jobs, health care, or a decent education, give them someone to hate. Give them sadism. Make black people feel uncomfortable. Mike Pence should be careful throwing his lot in with people who think the old Confederacy was about preserving a noble way of life. The Confederate flag seen here was carried into the Capitol on January 6th by the very same people who were looking for Mike Pence to hang him. Like I keep reminding you, and I'll be doing this till they change, the Republican Party doesn't believe in governing because that means making rich people pay taxes. So Republicans preach hatred and intolerance, and they create imaginary enemies to serve as scapegoats. There is nothing the Republicans offer that makes anyone's life better. What they offer instead is making someone else's life a lot worse like members of the LGBTQ community. This is college dropout Charlie Kirk, who runs the Christian nationalist Turning Points USA, which is primarily funded by wealthy members of the religious right with ties to the fossil fuel industry. Now, Turning Points USA wants to replace CPAC, CPAC's in trouble. Turning Points USA thinks it can be the Mecca for Muslim bashers. There's an opening because if you remember, CPAC is run by Matt Schlapp, who recently called Target's gay pride merchandise the work of Satan. But it turns out Matt Schlapp has been out drinking with Satan. Matt Schlapp likes to drink and when he drinks, allegedly, he likes to sexually assault attractive Republican men. 
at least according to a civil lawsuit that is going forward, a civil lawsuit that prompted the treasurer of CPAC to quit because he said donations to CPAC were being used to pay Matt Schlapp's legal fees instead of going towards worthy conservative causes. Is there such a thing? Charlie Kirk sees an opening. He thinks turning points can be the next CPAC because he's not gay. He hates the gays and he's straight. You know how I know he's straight? Because he can't wait to tell everybody he's married to the woman who won the Miss Arizona USA pageant competition back in 2012. What could be more heterosexual than Miss Arizona USA? Only a real man gets a trophy wife. And Charlie Kirk held another one of his big summits over the weekend. This time, it was called Turning Point USA's Young Women's Leadership Summit was held at the Gaylord Hotel in Texas. The Gaylord Hotel in Texas. And Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke, and she was appalled that the Gaylord Hotel was honoring Pride Month by putting the gay pride flag out front. Now, I'm going to tell you, and I'm standing in, this, in, the, in the Gaylord, and they might kick me out and never want me to come back. Shame on them. Shame on them. Shame on them for hanging that flag out there. Shame on them. The Gaylord Hotel, hosting the Turning Points affair, had the gay pride flag outside. The Gaylord Hotel in Texas. She upset. She's upset. Marjorie Taylor Greene is upset that the Gaylord Hotel had a uh, gay, pride, <laughs> gay pride flag outside. Uh, you know, that's how I know two things are true. Jesus is on my side, not theirs. And Jesus has an amazing sense of humor. He made some incredibly stupid people. And they're funny. And they're dangerous. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. for Thank God It's Dr. Fraud. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, as well as It's Not Just in Your Head. We'll get her co-hosts at the end of the show. We always like to find out who she works with. And she is a psychotherapist who helps her patients through the prism of the economic system 
uh, we're forced to live under. Let's talk about the American family. Yeah. Is the American family in more trouble than it was, say, in the 1950s? Or was the 1950s just quiet desperation? Nobody talked about it, but it's always been horrible. Yeah, I think it's always been horrible because the basic premise of the family is crazy. Just because you get knocked up, you could take care of a vulnerable person for 24 hours a day. No, no, that's silly. And I think since the 50s, the family has fallen apart. It was based on what was an 89% white country. And if you were in a family headed by a white male, each generation could do better than the last from 1820 to about 1970s. That's a long time. And the mythology that if you, if you make it, you can really try. And, that, and families were more or less stable because women had no place to go, even if they were beaten up you know, by their husbands, that the battered women's shelters and making it a crime to beat your wife, that didn't happen until the women's movement made it happen. And so there was a lot of quiet desperation and women were basically imprisoned in the house and men had the big burden of supporting this household with a woman's labor producing his food and cleanliness and order and childcare and emotional connection with someone which didn't feel unmanly because it was your sex partner and social connection with his children and with his family and with his friends. And women were full-time servants, but they were supported. They're, those are the jokes. I, you know. Did I read, I think I read in The Nation that when Diane Feinstein first entered politics, women couldn't get a credit card? That's right. Women couldn't get a credit card. We couldn't get birth control. Then we got birth control only if we were married and our husbands gave permission. We certainly couldn't get abortions. And at first we could only with our, the father's permission, we couldn't get a credit card. We were not, you know, we got 59 cents on the male dollar as a wage and we were not promoted. So, you know, there was a huge, a huge discrimination. Now, if you count women together, women, white, black, Hispanic, other, whatever, we get 82% of a male wage. And it's something that a lot of women can live on, even if black women get less. But, uh, and also 90% of the people were married. Now, the biggest trend among married people is no children. And most of American women aren't married. That's a huge sea change. Now, the majority of people are separated or divorced. So, in the 50s, it was 25%. Please, I'm sorry to interrupt. it, It feels like we're under assault here. The, yes. the uh, human rights campaign that's the largest uh, gay rights lobbying organization in America issued their first ever uh, state of emergency for the LGBTQ community. Something like 75 anti-LGBTQ laws have been passed in s- state legislatures. Uh, 
this year, it, it, it feels like it's more dangerous than it's been in a while. The NAACP issued a travel advisory for Florida. So it's more dangerous than it's been in the past 10 years. But yeah. when you look at the sweep of history, it's much better now than it was, what, 30 years ago? Like the LGBTQ yeah, community? It's, it's the LGBTQ community was basically born with Stonewall in 1970. And so certainly before 1970 and shortly after for a long time. And one of the things that emboldened and empowered the gay community was the AIDS was act up. You know, instead of being the Mattachine Society was the very staid, um, orderly, go slow kind of group for gay rights, but ACT UP wasn't. They'd get right out there and say, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And there's now gay rights centers and gay centers for meetings and everything else all over the place. And so that it's very different. And now it's a crime to accost gays because they're gay. Before gays wouldn't even report it. And the homophobia that we're seeing now is egregious. Um, I want to be careful. Uh, I'm talking from a privileged bubble, so I want to be careful here. It, as a, as a white heterosexual male living in New York, it, it seems like you watch the Tonys and you have two transgender actors winning Tonys that much of this antipathy towards the LGBTQ community is the fear that they're getting too much, that they're, that they're winning. I'm sorry. It's the fear of change. I think America has changed. We're a dying empire instead of a dominant one. And people's, the biggest jobs that exist are dead-end crap jobs in call centers, fast food, Amazon, and Walmart. And they're offensive jobs. And people can't get ahead. And huge conglomerates have replaced mom-and-pop stores. And, you know, the they're terrified that the changes that have come with the dying empire and with the huge discrepancy between rich and poor in the United States. In 1970, we were the most egalitarian nation in the developed world. Now we're the least of all. And so, you know, in the 1970s, the CEO got 40% more than the average worker. Now it's 340%. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and wealth has accumulated wildly at the top that makes the rules to perpetuate their wealth. And so people, these changes have been terrible for the mass of people and they're afraid. And the Republican party tries to take their fear and direct it towards uppity women, uppity black people, people of color all over and trans people and homosexual people 
because they don't want to look at the class division that's happened and direct the mass of people's anger at the small number of billionaires at the top who made 40% more during the pandemic while people were hurting and being evicted. They want to, the Republicans and the Democrats want to keep the news about sharing wealth out of the public eye. As I said before, like the debt crisis, they don't, nobody brings up, take back the big 1.7 trillion Trump tax cut or tax incomes over 10 million a year. Instead, they will buy treasury notes, which are very safe and will pay them interest instead of taxing them. Very nice for them. Crappy for the mass of American people. And so they don't want people to see, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats, what the problem is. And so the Republicans direct it towards trans people, gay people, unions, uppity women, you know, empowered women, empowered people of color, people who think that their lives matter, you know, and that's a very dominant group. And even though it's a small group, really, they yell. Right. So is the empire in decline or is it just greed? Is it just that all the wealth has flowed to five families and that America is as strong as it's always been? Just the American people are the weakest they've ever been. Well, America isn't. We lost the last four wars we fought, even though we're the biggest weapons manufacturers in the world, and we still have a wartime economy, which is why they always need a war to fight, even if it's an ambiguous war, like a war on terror that you can't see. And um, I think we're not as strong. China's economy is growing at 4.9%. Ours at 1.5 or 1.6%. Big difference. China is took 880 million people out of poverty just in the the last pandemic. Eight million more Americans went into poverty. People are looking to China. In the year 2000, 90 percent of the world's currency was in dollars. That's been cut in half just since 2000. The last 23 years, now people trade in their own currency or in Chinese renminbi or yuans, which is what they hold in their treasuries. That is a big difference. And even in South America, which in the 50s, we used to control totally. Now, Brazil is in the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Economic Alliance. Argentina is applying. Those are the biggest countries this is wild. Right. Nicaragua was also applying. We don't have the control we did. We couldn't even take back Cuba, even though we tried to assassinate Castro numerous times and made that Bay of Pigs miserable invasion. Right. And this affects the family because they feel, well, they, they not only feel poor. They are. <laughs> They are poor, and it affects the family because the the U.S. family was based on the idea of a male wage, a white 
male wage. And they always criticized black people because they said that they were, the males were shiftless and lustful and lazy. That's the Moynihan Report, 1965. But the fact is they couldn't support their families the way men in the majority were supposed to because they didn't get paid enough. And now Charles Murray, who wrote Coming Apart and is a right-wing theoretician of the family, blames lazy white working class men who are too lusty to be at home with their kids. It isn't that. The basic economic structure of the family wage that supported a family, that's done. And men can't support their wives, but still have the idea that as men, they should come home and command their wives domestic labor. And so they, you know, they want their wife to build up their masculinity, which is assaulted at work, by doing extra housework, extra sex, extra child care, extra social care, extra emotional care, and women are opting out, which is why for the first time in American history, the majority of women are single and by choice. 70% of divorces are initiated by women. That's a, a new statistic. Because the economic basis is gone, and women now, although we're poorer, and women with children are even poorer, we can support ourselves and are not willing to put up with it. Are we seeing the same thing in Nordic countries that have a better safety net? Much less. First place, if you're an unmarried mother in the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, you get a break in terms of housing, <clears throat> in terms of getting school clothes for your kids. You get all sorts of breaks. They want to, they don't care that much if you're married or not. They're much less religion ridden than the United States. And they're taking care of their people. And it's not a big deal. They don't have those kind of sexual strictures that we do. Right. Right. So the United States federal government is totally unresponsive to the needs of the American people. It's become apparent. Mm -hmm. And I remember something. I remember there was an African-American woman, Bernadette Laquette, great comedian, great actress. And she said to me, as a black woman, you can knock on doors, but some doors, they're just not going to open for you and you have to move on. At what point do the American people have to realize Washington, D.C., the doors are locked. They're not opening the doors. The minimum wage is they $7.25 hasn't been raised since 2009. They're not going to raise it. They're not going to really do anything for us. What if we come to the conclusion that government isn't the answer? What's the alternative? Well, people do need a government. They just don't need an unresponsive government. But, and if the United States had 4 million people in the street like France did, we might see some changes. You know, but Americans aren't organized into a left political alternative. They have splintered groups that are militant and fine. You know, they have groups against homophobia and transphobia. They have groups affirming LGBTQIA identity. They have climate extinction groups. They have Black Lives Matter. They have unions, but they're not together. 
And so they're not the force that would counteract a government for the wealthy, which is unchecked right. in the United States. Plus, we allow money in private elections. They don't in any of those countries, including France and Germany. So that's different, too. They do a pretty good job confusing and dividing us, don't they? Yeah. They do. And, and there's it, a playbook. I mean, I, I was reading how Goebbels at one time was trying to manipulate popular opinion here in the United States to keep us out of World War II. And his plan was it didn't matter. Consistency was the hobgoblin. You don't need consistency. You just need confusion. Give the American people division and you can control them. He didn't know how right he was. So what were the victims of here is a tried and true playbook. They know what they're doing, don't they? Yes, they do. They're divided too, though. For example, on China, since one stat I saw was 60% of Chinese corporations that began as big corporate enterprises were subsidized or at least invested in, I should say, rather than subsidized. They had American investments and there's huge American investments in China, which stands as op some opposition to warring on China. You know, that. But they can move capital these days very quickly to India, can't they? They can't move their whole investment in a manufacturing enterprise so quickly. And it's they getting, don't but it is getting the goods moving. They don't want a war. They don't want sanctions. They don't want frozen trade. They're multinationals. They want the goods moving. Plus, India is in a coalition with China. That's a problem. They, the world is much more complex. When the United States was king, because every other economy was destroyed after World War II, we were the only standing economy. And China was decimated, having been a terribly poor country that was invaded by the Japan who killed hundreds of thousands of Chinese and then suffered a civil war. Oh, my God, you know, that, that was no competition at all. Russia was razed to the ground. And so were all the other economies. We were king. That Now we have competitors. And also now that our economy, our empire is over, we could have the good grace to say, okay, we, have, we could stop spending $850 billion on armaments. We could convert to a peacetime economy. <coughs> And do something for our people who are hurting over 44 percent of poor. It's terrible. Let me ask you a, a difficult question about the environment and Nazi Germany. So I looked out the window last week. How did you hold up? I know you're getting over COVID. How are you with the, the smoke? I'm OK. I got over it. I wore a mask every time I went out. So... There are people who survived Nazi Germany because they knew when to get out. Right. Here in America, we keep saying, what's it going to take for people to realize that we have to change? You know, Uvalde, we all thought, okay, you saw the, the, ba the babies what? stacked up. You thought, now? January 6th, you saw 
Republicans running for safety? You thought, now? And then you look out the window last week and you see all of Manhattan, just it's an apocalyptic hellscape. And you turn on the TV and the right is saying, Canada has to learn how to rake its leaves. There's nothing to do with At what point do you realize that this country is incapable now of pivoting, changing? Well, I don't think it's incapable. I think the American people have been stupefied and discouraged because we don't have such a presence and a movement and an alternative. People are in despair and they're acting out in a lot of hostile ways. You know, Europe has many fewer murders and almost no mass murders compared because they take out, when there's a problem, they find its social origins and they demonstrate they don't go home and smash their kids or their wife. That there's their level, their anger is political and social. It's not personal violence. But we don't have a movement. We did in the 60s. The anti-war movement was an umbrella movement. But maybe, I'm just throwing this out, there's an American character, the same way there's a German character. The, the, the Germans liked a certain type of order. They liked, I mean, we, we decided there would be no collective guilt for Germany after World War II. You couldn't have had Hitler without people being complicit. Absolutely. And we didn't blame the German people. We blamed the German leaders whose nuclear secrets we didn't need. And yeah. so is there something to the American character? We keep waiting for this movement. It, is there something about the American people? Is there? I don't think it's that because in the 30s and the 60s, that wasn't our character. I think this is a very painful time. And I think that people basically gave up. I think when the big corporations made their money abroad in India, China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and brought their trillions home, they didn't have a left movement. We haven't had a left movement. Look, Obama crushed the incipient left that was happening with Occupy all at once. They were closed down through a federal mandate by Obama. So that movement only lasted less than a year in 2011. And even in that year, they changed the discourse. They introduced the idea of the 99% and the 1%. It's there. And the awareness that we need each other is there in the burgeoning strike that we see, you know, we may have 330,000 UPS drivers out next week. Wow. There are strikes and union activities happening all over the country. And those are Americans. And the Amer it's not in the character of America, it's in the history. And I think the combination of the McCarthy era that knocked out the left here the idea that anyone who protested was a communist or a socialist fellow traveler or a leftist social traveler, they expunged communists from the union. 
with the complicity of the unionists. And it became what was once a common thing. There was one communist, at least in every four families, who was, you know, there at the Thanksgiving talking about things. And I think that plus the the outrageous buying of the American political system. You know, the last presidential race used $4.4 billion. And we don't have the rules and the laws against it. So the person who pays the piper calls the tune. And you need a well-organized mass movement to do that. And I think they have that in France. Also, they have a much more collective culture. We are much more isolated than we ever were. The television has isolated people. Computers have isolated people. Video games have isolated people. That's why um, the book Bowling Alone, which the study's been repeated over and over again, there were more people involved together in Bowling Leagues Alone in 1970 than are in anything now. Anything. People were sitting in despair watching their own TV as their country was taken away from them by the corporate elite and their political system was bought and they ended up with the best democracy money can buy, which doesn't give them the alternatives that the French, the Germans, the Nordic people have. We have two capitalist parties, no choice of system. And so that people are in despair. And I don't know what would turn it around. I really don't. But at some point, people do turn around. There's that famous saying, you know, there are decades when nothing happens. There are weeks when decades happen. And you don't know what will. Did Lenin say that? Yes, I think he did. I think it was Lenin. Well, Dr. Harriet Fraud, let's find out who your co-hosts are on It's not just in your head and uh, capitalism hits home. Well, I'm the host, I guess, or the host, if you want to use one gender, for capitalism hits home right now. It's a solo show. And um, it's not just in your head, which talks about the social participation in psychological issues. I do with Liam Tate from England and Ikoi Hiro previously from Japan, now from the United States. And you're also on, I believe, Tuesdays here in New York City? WBAI at 6.30. 6.30 WBAI. Update is the name of the show. I'm sorry, you, you broke up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's Interpersonal Update is what the show is called. Fantastic. And it's about personal issues and how they're shaped and also shape political and economic issues. And how do people contact you? hfraud at gmail.com or harrietfraud.com website. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week, I hope. See you next Monday. I look forward to it. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.